Thank you, Amber. If you want to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, continue on. We've been out of 1 Corinthians for a couple weeks, but continue on in our series. Um, when we were just beginning to plant the church five or six years ago, um, many of you know we're part of a, a network of churches in the, in the region called Three Strand. And so as I was going through a process, I was invited to go around to the various Three Strand churches and preach a message for them to get to know um, me and for me to get to know the, the other Three Strand churches. And the text I chose to preach from with those sermons and all those churches was 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 25. Uh, this is a text that I, I love it's probably the text that has impacted me the most, at least one of them. Uh, it has impacted my view of God, of God's purposes from beginning to end, God's grand plan of what he's up to and what his goal is. It's impacted my view of the gospel, what it is and isn't, and it's impacted significantly my view of church and ministry and, and preaching and, and what the purpose and means of doing those things are. If I had had to only preach one text for the rest of my life every Sunday, I'd probably choose this collection, this group of verses, because there is so much to mine here. Um, originally, when I planned this series, I, I planned that we'd, we'd cover verses 18 through 25 in one week. Well, this week, as I was preparing, I realized there's just too much in here, so we're going to cover one verse today. <laughs> verse 18, and uh, then we'll go on from there. And my hope and prayer is that you see not just why I like this verse so much, but that you see the power and wisdom of God in the gospel from this text. That you would see the gospel, perhaps for the first time, or at least with much greater clarity, and receive it with much greater joy. Before we get into verse 18, let me connect it with the previous section, which we covered now a couple weeks ago, verses 10 through 17. If you have your Bibles and kind of want to scan through those, uh, the, the big idea in verses 10 through 17, uh, Paul was arguing and, and encouraging the, the Corinthian believers to unity in Jesus. Literally, the phrase he says is that you would say the same thing about Jesus, agree about Jesus. And specifically, he's showing them where not to draw lines of division. So you see in that passage there that, um, that the Corinthians were saying things like, well, I follow Paul. That's my guy. I follow Apollos, other people were, were saying, or I follow Peter. I follow Jesus. And they were dividing, and they were making a huge deal out of these various preachers and teachers that had come through Corinth. And they were being torn apart by their preference for these teachers. But Paul goes on to argue that the unity of the church is not found in the personality or the charisma or the style or the giftings or the success of different ministers or our preferences for one over the other. Um, we should not be the church that simply prefers the, the teaching and preaching of Derek Fekas or, or anyone. We should not be a church that simply prefers 
various authors or well-known preachers in our society. Like, oh, we're the church that likes so-and-so. And the reason is because the power of the gospel, the power of God at work through the gospel, isn't found in any individual. No matter how gifted, no matter how charismatic. No, the power of the gospel is in the gospel itself. And this is by God's design. This is how God set it up to be. And so Paul ends that section we covered a few weeks ago in verse 17. We'll put this verse up here. He says this, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And then hear this next part. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, or words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. In other words, Paul's calling by God was not to go out and be this impressive speaker or to be this brilliant thinker and philosopher. His calling was to go out and simply and clearly communicate the gospel. To show not his own brilliance and charisma and impressiveness, but the brilliance and impressiveness of God in the gospel. Gospel doesn't need our PR help. And so that leads to verse 18, which begins with the word for. So there's a connection between verse 18 and and what came before. And Paul is going to go on now to dig into the power of the gospel. Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And then he'll go on to talk about the power of of the cross of Christ. So let me read verse 18, and we're just going to walk through it just in this one verse, but we're really going to try to mine it for all it's worth. So let me read it through. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Let me read it one more time. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Okay, first of all, we need to understand what we're talking about here. What is the subject matter at hand? What is it that is the power of God, as Paul says? Paul uses various phrases throughout this section to get at this. He says the word of the cross here, this message, news about the cross. In verse 17, he spoke of the cross of Christ In verse 21, he he speaks of the folly of what we preach. In verse 23, he talks about preaching Christ crucified. And then similarly, in chapter chapter 2, he says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And then at the beginning of the letter, he refers to the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. So to put all this all together, we see at least three components here. First of all, there's a person, right? Good Sunday school answer, we're talking about Jesus. Jesus being his name, Christ being his, or Messiah being his title, connecting him to all of these Old Testament prophecies of his role, that this kingly savior that would come from God. Secondly, there's an event about this person. 
right? We're not simply talking about anything and everything about Jesus, whether his miracles, his claims, his teaching, his resurrection, all of that's important, all of that has a, has a, a place. But the focus here, and in much of the New Testament, is on his death. Paul is honing in on the death of Christ, the cross of Christ. The New Testament authors are absolutely convinced that the death and the resurrection of Jesus are absolutely critical to who he is and to his mission. That, that we don't understand Jesus if we just think that he's a great teacher or a great example. But we have to wrestle with the cross. That his death was something planned from before time began. It wasn't just a happen chance of history. But it had a very specific purpose, an end in mind, and Jesus went to it willingly. And so you have a person, we have this event, and then we have the word of, or the message of, this person and event. Paul says, we preach Christ crucified. So it doesn't merely matter that this event happened in history, but also that the news of this event is proclaimed and heard and believed upon. The, the good news, right? Gospel means good news. The good news of Christianity is just that. It's news. It's an announcement. Because ultimately, it, it's a message of what God has done for us, about what God has done to draw sinners like us to himself. Not about what we must do to get to God or attract God's attention or to stay on God's good side. And so if you hear and understand nothing else about Christianity, hear and understand this word, this word of the cross. God saves sinners through Christ and him crucified. In our place, for our sins. It is in Christ that the grace of God is poured out for us and that we are welcomed into his loving arms. Now, what Paul says next might be kind of surprising because we're talking about the power of the cross, the power of the gospel, and he immediately brings up the fact that well, the gospel doesn't come across as powerful to all people. Look at what he says. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Uh, the, the word folly literally means moronic. The word of the cross is folly, moronic, silly, to those who are perishing. There are those who hear the gospel message, hear this word of the cross, and find it to be foolish, meaningless, pointless, who shrug their shoulders. More than that, many find it offensive, evil, even unjust. This was true in Paul's day. This is still true today. So in, in Paul's day, there are a couple reasons for this. Uh, first of all, it was quite obvious that a man who was killed by the Romans on a cross was no great man. Such a man would be seen as powerless, not powerful, 
And if you were among the Jews, you were even more turned off by this because you expected, or most many of them expected, the Messiah to come along and save them from their enemies. And at this time in history, their enemies were the, the Romans. And Jesus is conquered by the Romans. Um, today, we're used to seeing crosses all over the place, right? And we don't really think much about it. We wear them, have them on our churches. But in that day, the cross was a sign of horror. Uh, D.A. Carson writes, Crucifixion was reserved for slaves, aliens, and barbarians. Many thought it was not something to be talked about in impolite company. Many, uh, quite apart from the wretched torture inflicted on those who were executed by hanging from a cross, the cultural associations conjured up images of evil, corruption, abysmal rejection. And so into that world, imagine Paul you hear, you hear Paul say something like, the word of the cross is the very wisdom and power of God, like the pinnacle of God's power and wisdom. It's quite shocking. But there's more. For the Corinthians, there's more reasons why this message was seen as, or could be seen as foolish. In Corinth, we've talked about briefly before, but there were, in that day, in the Greek culture, there was these traveling debaters and orators who would go around, and they made a living going around and just talking and arguing and being very impressive. These were the celebrities and stars of that day. This was the entertainment that you went out, and you watched people give impressive speeches and argue. And then you would kind of judge them based on how they did, and they're charisma and their personality and their delivery and all of this. And one of the issues that Paul is pressing back against in, in this letter to the Corinthians is that they had a tendency and a temptation to judge the gospel and the people who proclaim the gospel and the, the preachers in the same way. So it was tempting to, to think that the power of this message was in its delivery or was in the person giving it. And so that's what they were doing in comparing Apollos and Paul and Peter and, and all of this. Like, all right, who's, who's the most impressive? Who's got the largest following? Who, who are we going to align with that makes us look the best? Perhaps they had no, perhaps they didn't have any shame in the gospel per se, as long it was, as it was connected to somebody impressive. They weren't ashamed of a crucified Messiah necessarily, only as long as it didn't make them to look too silly or weird. And they could kind of say, well, he, he's, he's, he, he believes in it. And the situation has not fundamentally changed in our day, right? The gospel is still found to be foolish and offensive. And many reasons are given uh, it's helpful to consider some of these. And perhaps you've wrestled and found yourself thinking these same things, probably at times you have, and, and really worked through these. First, the gospel proposes that you and I and everyone is a sinner before God, and that our sin is so horrific and weighty that it took nothing less than the death of Jesus God in the flesh to atone for it. Like, 
That was the only payment that was sufficient, the only thing that could balance the scales for your and my sin. That is radically different than most messages you will find coming from secular therapy or self-improvement or self-help in our day. Let's start with the fact that you are an utter sinner before God. That's not how those counseling sessions begin. Second, the gospel proposes that you and I do not have in ourselves the ability or strength to save ourselves. That we are not self-sufficient. That we are not enough in a very real sense. That it's not enough to just be yourself. We, we actually need saved from ourselves. Now, I don't mean that God hasn't created you unique in his image with a lovely and unique design. He has. I don't mean that you and I need to try to just be like somebody else. That's not the point. But all that God has created us to be has been stained, marred by sin, and is in need of rescue. Third, the gospel proposes that God is much more glorious and weighty than we realize, and that offending God is much more serious than we think. If our sin cannot just be just forgiven or just slid under the rug, just kind of shrugged at and forgotten, if God's character and witness cannot allow sinners to enter his presence apart from a mighty work of atonement, apart from him doing something on our part, then God is much greater than we think. And this is threatening, right? A great and big and glorious God is threatening to our pride, is threatening to our self-rule. Fourth, the gospel says that God willed for blood to be spilt over us. Many would call the gospel divine child abuse. Like, how could you worship a God who killed his son? Well, there are many things to say in response to that. One is that there was complete agreement and unity between the Father and Son for Jesus to give his life. Jesus came willingly. Another is that this was all done out of love for us as a way to bring us into the love of God. But still, the events of the gospel are horrific, are shocking, are bloody. I mean, it's not a G-rated movie. Is this really the pinnacle of the wisdom of God? And so what do we do with all this? What do we do when this message that perhaps we claim to believe and we want to see others believe and we've found to be powerful, but when others don't? When the response that we desire to see when we talk to our coworkers or friends or family and we don't get the response that we want? Well, the tendency, the temptation is to say it's a problem. To say that this is a problem, right? That there's something wrong if people are offended. There's something wrong if Christians aren't respected 
if we don't have power and influence in our society. There's something wrong if churches aren't rapidly growing or growing at all. Notice that Paul doesn't come to this conclusion. Paul doesn't conclude that the perception of folly that the gospel can have is something that needs to be fixed. He just says it is. And he'll actually go on to say that it's by design. This is exactly how God designed the gospel. To have a sense, a perception of folly to many. We'll get into that next week. But the gospel message will always seem foolish, even offensive to many. And this doesn't mean that we need to change it. It doesn't mean that we need to try to make it more attractive and acceptable and hip. In, in our day, there's lots of bemoaning the, the view, the place of Christianity and Christians in our society. There's lots of propositions as how Christians can become more respectable and have influence and power in society. And this comes from all over the place, both from right-leaning Christians and left-leaning Christians. And some of this is clearly warranted. As long as we're talking about matters of sin, of where Christians have sinned, there's conversations to be had. But our goal is never to have respect and power and influence in a society. If it is, it will cause us to tone down or move on from or alter the gospel. It will cause us to live out of step with the gospel because the gospel will always be folly to those who are perishing. This doesn't mean we don't love those who have yet to cling to the gospel. That's not what Paul is saying at all. But we don't control how it's received. And so what do we do? And Paul goes on. Last part of the verse. But to us who are being saved... It, the word of the cross, is the power of God. So despite what may seem, what is the case, that the gospel is often received as foolishness, as weakness, as offensive, as evil, it still remains the power of God to those who are being saved. So what does this mean? How can a message be the power of God? I mean, we hear people say things like this all the time, like, that was a powerful message. That was a life-changing message. And usually what they mean by that was like, that really made me think, that really motivated me, that encouraged me, that convicted me, that challenged me. That's not the same as the power of the gospel that we're talking about. The gospel is not powerful because it makes you think, although it does do that. The gospel is not powerful just because it challenges you and convicts you, although it does do that. It's not Powerful because it motivates you, although it certainly does that. But the gospel is much more than a motivational, feel-good, powerful message in the sense that like a TED Talk might be. And this is actually gets right to the point of what Paul is saying. This is the distinction that Paul is making here between the eloquent wisdom of the debaters and orators who would go around and were very impressive and that kind of power, and the gospel, 
which had a very different kind of power. And so in verse 21, if you want to jump ahead a few verses, he says, It pleased God through the folly, so the folly in the eyes of the world, of what we preach. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. In other words, the gospel is powerful because it accomplishes God's purposes. It saves people. It proclaims what God has done to save sinners, to turn us from enemies into beloved children, to make us his own. It isn't first and foremost about motivating us to live different lives, about us learning how to pick ourselves up and be strengthened and just do better. It's first and foremost about revealing our true condition, about the true state of things, and showing what God has done to overcome that and reconcile us with himself. And to those who hear this and believe it, not just in a mental ascent kind of way, I'm like, oh yeah, that sounds right. No, but to those who hear it and run to Jesus and cling to him as their only hope in life and death are saved by the power of God. And God's power and wisdom are displayed through this. God radically changes us. As we hear this message, we are granted faith. God replaces our dead, rebellious hearts with his spirit. He grants us true sorrow over our sin that we might run and find comfort and rest and hope in his grace. And it's true. As that happens, we are motivated, encouraged, and challenged, and and we live differently. But all of that is a result of merely clinging to this message in faith. It's a result of God's work in our hearts, not just our will to change. Let me draw out a couple of specific applications to this. First of all, kind of on a more personal level, we would plead with you to put your faith in Jesus alone, in the cross of Christ, in Christ and him crucified alone. Whatever you thought Christianity was about whatever you thought God was up to in this world and in your life, whatever you thought it meant to become a Christian and live as a Christian, whether just coming here every Sunday, the fact that you get something out of reading your Bible or praying helps you live your life better, being a decent person, the fact that you like various teachers who say they are Christian or you have certain political or cultural convictions. None of that makes you a Christian. None of that is ultimately what we are about. None of that is ultimately what draws us together and what unites us. What is non-negotiable as a Christian is that you and I cling to the cross of Christ as our only hope in life and death. That Christ and him crucified is the basis of, our, of who we are, at the deepest level of our identity, of our worth, of our hope. And not just once at the beginning of our Christian life, but continually coming back to that 
grounding ourselves in that over and over again. A second application, and this is more on the kind of corporate level, and we're going to get into this more next week, but when you think of church and ministry and what we are doing as a church or what we should be doing as a church or how we judge what we are doing as a church, continue to cling to the word of the cross, continue to cling to God's word as the power of God. And what I mean is this. Beware of trusting something other than God and the gospel. Beware of trusting the various eloquent wisdoms of our day, the various human techniques to improve the gospel and make it more attractive and more effective. Right? Paul says he was called to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom. Now, it's not that preachers or you and I can't ever be eloquent or humorous or witty or make use of communication techniques or technology. I mean, I think we would all agree that some change in tone and reflection when you're speaking makes it easier to follow along. Such things are not wrong in, in themselves. Churches and preachers will vary in their communication styles and and how they present themselves. But we need to be ever aware of what we are trusting to produce results. We need to be ever aware of whether the fruit of our work, whether the results are actually giving evidence to a work of God and the gospel, or merely seem to just be the fruit of our ingenuity, our production value. And at times, this actually means forsaking techniques that quote-unquote work in a society in order to show that the power of the gospel. I remember seeing a clip of a service of a church in Las Vegas a few years ago, and it was, it was very produced and flashy, and it resembled what you would find in many of the shows in Las Vegas. And I remember thinking, it's not at all clear that the thing that is drawing all of these people together is this message of God and the gospel, or the entertainment and production and impressiveness of the service. Similarly, D.A. Carson tells the story of a Puritan preacher, Thomas Goodwin. He says, when Thomas Goodwin went up to Cambridge University in 1613, he desired to emulate the best witty preachers, such as Dr. Senhouse of St. John's College. But after his conversion, Goodwin adopted the Puritan principle. I came to this resolved principle that I would preach holy and altogether sound and wholesome words without affection of wit and vanity of eloquence. I have continued in that purpose and practiced these threescore years. I have preached what I thought was truly edifying, either for conversion or bringing them up to eternal life. I, I know of a, a, a preacher, a, a current preacher that's well known in our day that I respect a lot, and he is a very charismatic individual, and I've heard him say that he intentionally writes out his sermons 
and pretty much sticks to his notes and tones down his charisma because he knows that he can keep people's attention pretty well on his own. He has that gift, but that's not what he wants to rely on for his preaching. And so it's tempting in a quest for unity, which was what Paul was talking about earlier in this passage, it's tempting to say something like, well, all of the different approaches to ministry and preaching are the same. They're essentially all equal. The differences don't matter. Let's just be unified. It's not exactly the case. Because our churches and our ministries and our lives and our preaching can be based on the conviction that there is power in the word of the cross and we're going to stick with that no matter what the results look like. And we're going to trust the fruit to God even when scoffing and rejection come. Or our churches and our ministries and our preaching and our lives can be probably subtly and subconsciously, but nonetheless based on the conviction that the gospel needs a little help. It's a little bit insufficient. And so we need to play it down. We need to doctor it up a little bit. We need to make other things a little more preeminent. If we really want to draw people in, we need to do some studies and see what people want to hear. We need to remove the hard edges around the gospel. Because we want to draw people in, right? We want to be influential, right? No, our calling is to make disciples. And God has told us how to do that. We do that by proclaiming the whole counsel of God, by proclaiming the gospel, inviting others to respond, giving evidence and testimony to that by our lives of love and service, and trusting the results to God. And the underlying reason for all of this, the wisdom of God behind all of this, is that it's not about our glory and our impressiveness, about others thinking, wow, that's an awesome church, or that's an amazing individual. The point is that all boasting is directed to Christ, that God gets all the glory. So we're going to pray and then take communion. If you have trusted in Christ as your only hope in life and death, this is a chance to celebrate that tangibly, not just on your own individually before God, that as well, but also with other believers who are drawn together exactly by that. I mean, many things, the things that we do as a church are weird, right? We confessed our sins earlier. That's weird. And we confess that Jesus is sufficient for us and God is good. And we cling to him. Let's pray.